Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Michelle Ranavat, to our show today. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Ranavat, a global skincare line inspired by Indian beauty rituals. Michelle had a very successful career in finance and then in pharma, but it wasn't until she gave birth to her two sons when she started thinking about potentially going on a new path. Michelle leaned on traditional Ayurvedic remedies to heal her changing skin, and it was really the postpartum hair loss that inspired her to eventually start Ranavant. Having seen the impact herself from these various different beauty rituals she tried, she couldn't find any good quality Ayurvedic products in the US, and that's when she decided to launch her own business. Both Michelle and Ranavat have been featured consistently in Allure, Glamour, and Vogue, where Michelle was named one of the top 50 influential global Indians. Ranavat is also the first South Asian-founded Ayurvedic skincare brand to be at Sephora. We'll talk to Michelle about her career before entrepreneurship and how getting suddenly laid off from her reputable job was one of the hardest, but ultimately best moments in her life. We also chat about how certain setbacks taught her about resilience and why that's now one of her superpowers in running her business. Michelle also opens up about how Ronavout is self-funded and how she supported the growth with zero outside funding, how she also created awareness in the early days when she had no experience in skincare, and why patience and having intention is so important when building a well-run and successful company. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Oh, my pleasure. So good to be here. Yes. Well, I really enjoyed getting to learn more about your story when I was doing research on you. And I'd actually love to start on a bigger picture question that I think would bring a lot of value to the women listening today. What do you think are some of the top beliefs that hold women back from taking the leap and building their empire? I would say comfort or in a way, feeling really good about where they are and thinking about that trade-off. Because I know you're taking something that you're feeling even if you're curious about trying something new, you're doing something and making that switch to something totally new where you've never dealt with it before. Maybe it's a new industry, maybe it's a product, but I think starting out fresh is really intimidating. And I think oftentimes we feel that is more the case as we get older in age that we feel like, oh my gosh, we sort of create these limits to what we think is possible to start anew and afresh. And so I think that is like one big thing that I think can tend to hold people back. Yes. And speaking about beliefs, that takes me to just your incredible story. You know, you started Ranavat in your 40s, which is young, but you know, some people might think it's a little bit older and you had two very young kids at the time. So do you think there were some beliefs that you were working through that might have been something you were dealing with at the time before really launching Ranavat? Yeah. So I actually started when I was 35, which is still, you know, maybe a bit later than what people think. I feel like the gold standard is always like Forbes 30 under 30 and that kind of thing. You know, if you think about it, that's a pretty small 
amount of your life. And there's so much learning that you do during those early years that you can actually apply into something different. So I started the brand after having two kids. I think my youngest was six months. So they were Mm. pretty young at the time. But, you know, in a way, it was actually such a blessing to start after that phase of my life had completed, because then I was really able to focus. And I think there's no right or wrong answer. There's absolutely entrepreneurs that have kids along the way, amazing 30 under 30 stories. But I think the point of this isn't to sort of say there's a right way, but more to encourage people to really think about broadening the time period that you have in life to do what it is you love. You don't really want to superficially say, well, I've already reached a certain point where now it's really hard to start something new or now I don't see as many people starting things or being successful in their careers at this age. I think that's not true. And I feel Mm -hmm. like bringing more awareness to that is really key. And I admire, and we'll go into your story in a little bit, but just many jumps that you've done into new industries that you didn't know even before starting the company. So I think building that muscle is always great. And like you said, there's no time period to continuously be curious and explore and try new things. So I really love how you brought that up. And I want to actually circle back to your upbringing. I've done a lot of research about you and you've often talked about your parents and the countless lessons that you've learned from them, especially when it comes to resilience and entrepreneurship. Can you talk more about how they've really set up the foundation for who Michelle is today? I think they absolutely led by example. I think the immigrant story is a really powerful experience that many of us went through that our first generation in the US or really anywhere in the world, I think just having that immigrant experience, you are forced to set a certain example through some of the tough times, but then also through the perseverance and through, you know, at this point, in some ways, like the victories that have happened after decades of hard work. So I think we're at a point right now, which is really exciting because we've seen, you know, one really big, strong generation come through raise the bar. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what this next generation does with, you know, first generation parents and see what their struggles are. I don't think anything is easy. Now there's a much higher bar in many ways, but I think we're also afforded a few luxuries that maybe we didn't grow up with. So I think it's going to be really interesting Mm. to see. Talking about your parents, there's actually a few parallels with your story, which we'll also get into, but your dad was laid off, right? When you were I can't, were you pretty young? I mean, a newborn or very early? Yeah, it was actually like right when I was, you know, I think my mom was pregnant with me at that time. Oh my gosh, which is, you know, not that any layoff is easy, but I'm sure that was much more impactful to your parents. But I love to just kind of hear more about his story because I think there's so much similarities between your father and what he's built and kind of what you're in the process of building with Ranavat. Yeah, absolutely. So the big interesting similarities that we both were laid off at pivotal times. I mean, mine was a bit maybe more early on in my career, but I think we both sort of had this experience with our fathers, you know, my father, but my grandfather also had started a chemicals company. So we always had this entrepreneurial mindset. I think when you think about my grandfather's business, it was in India, you know, shared amongst the three brothers. And, you know, it wasn't anything earth shattering, but I think it was still in many ways quite successful, not like a conglomerate or anything, but it really taught 
my dad and our family just a lot about entrepreneurship and what it takes. And Mm. so I think my dad growing up with that example, really then I think that's how he had the idea. And then of course, building on that, you know, I sort of grew up with watching my dad. And so I think each generation, while we have the same excitement and energy for entrepreneurship, we've sort of challenged ourselves, I guess, from one generation to the next. And it's it's kind of yeah. cool to see that. I'm interested to see if that happens with any of my kids. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I know you grew up, your dad started a business, you grew up in his warehouse and very much involved, always were working with him on weekends, you didn't go to summer camps. And you actually ended up studying industrial engineering in undergrad and then getting your master's in engineering management. So you didn't really jump into the world of entrepreneurship early on. You actually decided to work on Wall Street. And you alluded to this a bit ago, but that moment in your life and your career was pretty transformational. So I'd love to just kind of hear what inspired you to go into finance and how was that period in your life? I think I look back on it, it was a bit of a blur, but I think it was really exciting. (laughs) I learned so much. I came out of college and I think the thing to do was really to be on Wall Street. I ended up weaseling my way in. It was like a goal that I had that I legitimately really wanted this prestigious job at a prestigious firm. And I leveraged my background in engineering to get it. And so I worked in a super technical capacity was in the uh, securitization desk on the fixed income side, ended up working my way into power and energy and other different things. But when I think about that time period in life, I mean, one, it was like an alternate reality in many ways, just like the way that they would go out and the way that, you know, people would value money and the way that things were done from a cultural perspective on Wall Street. I mean, it was really different, but when you're living in it, you kind of don't realize that this is like a bit crazy. But I, I learned a lot. And I think the biggest skill that I picked up while on Wall Street was attention to detail and work ethic. So those two things, I mean, I just would never trade that experience for the world. And I still have great Lehman friends that I go on annual trips with and we're really close. So made some great friends. But I think from a skill set perspective, it was so valuable. But I do think, you know, I did it for, I guess, like four to no, actually almost, yeah, around like four years. And so I think after that time, I don't think I was really learning anything more beyond that. I was probably just entrenching myself in more of the details with regards to like that specific industry. So it was actually a perfect time to switch and transition into something else. Yeah. And at that time, I know you've mentioned that you had a really tough two years, right? When you were kind of nearing the end of your time at Lehman Brothers, both personally and professionally, there was a lot going on in your life. Can you kind of talk to us about what was happening and how you overcame those difficult moments? Because that's probably why it's a big blur. You were dealing with just so much. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of times like when it rains, it pours and all (laughs) of those random sayings, I guess, were all coming to life darkest before the dawn. And I, I really feel like Looking back on it, like, yes, it was a super tough time. I mean, both of my parents had pretty intense health issues that are, you know, thankfully since have come out of that. But yeah, I think honestly, it was just a a really big, difficult, dark time. But I position it so much now these days as this training ground for resilience and mental strength. And I think resilience is something that can be learned 
and you absolutely can grow from those moments of really difficult time. And I think I wouldn't say that I grew immediately, but I would say that over time, I, I absolutely now realize why those experiences came into my life. Yeah. And you mentioned that, and I'm so glad both of your parents are doing better. You mentioned that resilience is something that you can learn. Do you think it's just about being in those experiences and tough time that just through that, or do you have any other mechanisms that you think help you, whether it's like building your mental strength, because so much of entrepreneurship is resiliency, right? So would love to get your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of different coping mechanisms and I do feel like some of them might be healthier than others. I think a lot of entrepreneurs that I'm sure that you chat with as well, they probably have a really optimistic way that they look at life. And I think that's definitely a trait that I see a lot of times. So like just sort of optimism or almost to the point where you're really not looking at the facts and you're just trying to be optimistic. Like, I think I have a great chance to win the lottery. Like it's looking really good. It's kind of like that level (laughs) of optimism where it's not really rooted in reality. But I think sometimes those skills, and I'll call that a skill, like it's it comes in handy because sometimes you have to be able to mentally push through. I would say outside of just being a hopeless optimist, that's one side of things. But there's so many other tools that you can add, whether they be communities where you've got really good friends that uplift you, whether it be family or not. And then even beyond that, I think really going through tough times as a whole and coming out of that, I think that gives you some perspective because you think, okay, well, I was here before and I was able to get out of it. I'm here again. How can I mentally focus on improving instead of staying in the history of why this is happening to me. So I think those are some like good skills or things that I feel like I've sort of accumulated and everyone's going to have tough times. You can't control that. You can only go through the process of it really. Yeah, I love that. And I'm I'm chuckling because every woman that's come on my podcast has mentioned some difficult moment, whether it's like early stages of business, and we'll get into it with Ranavat soon. And I just launched a business eight months ago. So every time I hit some type of roadblock, I'm like, this is just like everyone else. And I'm going to one day say mm-hmm. my story about how I pushed through that roadblock. But it just gives me some comfort that it's not an easy road. We all kind of deal with tough moments. And you somehow always make it through if you're able to just be optimistic and kind of push through versus like you said, just sit there, be negative and sulk in like what's going on. So I think that's a great point. And circling back to that time when you're at Lehman, you actually got laid off. And at that time, you worked with your dad. I remember you said you never thought you'd ever work with your family, at least for as long as you did. So how was that experience? And did you know when you were working with him one day that you were going to start a business? You know, I didn't. I, I honestly felt that like I always had this like entrepreneurial journey or it, but I, I felt that working at my dad's company was sort of like personal enough that I felt like that company was my own. So I never really had this itch to leave. And I think the only thing and the only reason that I did end up leaving is because I think I was so compelled by this idea of starting, you know, bringing these products to life. And it wasn't really like, I think the itch of being an entrepreneur was sort of scratched. And it was really like, I had a pretty high bar around what it would take to start something new. And and so uh, only until that concept or idea came into my head was I even thinking about going anywhere. 
Yeah, I love this because I actually get a lot of women DMing me and emailing me and they're always asking like, Yasmin, how did you come up with your idea? Or like, what was it that triggered? And what you said, you know, you were in a good place, that entrepreneurial itch was scratched. So what were you going through at the time that you realized I need to do something about this? Like, this is unacceptable. For me, it was after I had my two sons, I was in a postpartum phase and I was off of work. And so that was like the first time in so many years that I was like out of my inbox, not into the day to day. And I had a moment to really think. And Mm -hmm. I feel like having that clarity or being at that exact juncture in my life was really part of it. You know, a lot of it is about timing in a weird way. And so I think that timing just happened. I, I just had had both of my kids. I was on maternity leave and I started to like dive into all of the Ayurvedic postpartum rituals and hair started falling out, was thinking about my skin. I mean, all of those things started happening. And I think I was in the frame of mind that I was discovering and thinking about, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea or why isn't there a product? And I had the time in many ways and the clarity because I wasn't in a day-to-day job to say, oh, well, maybe that's like something that I can bring to life because I have a lot of experience in product development and quality and sourcing and manufacturing. This sounds like something that I can solve. Hey, everyone. It's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. 
This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. Listening, and now let's get back to the show. Yeah. And it's interesting because one thing you mentioned, you know, thinking and reflecting similar to you, but I didn't have any kids and it wasn't after that period of my life, but I left during COVID. I've always saved money. And it was the first time I got to really focus on what does Yasmin want to do? Because similar to you, I was actually working with my dad and working even more hours than my finance days. So I think taking that moment, whether it's outside of work or if you're being thoughtful about money saved and taking a risk for a few months to really just like think about yourself is so key because so many women similar to you, come up with their business ideas when they're on maternity leave as well. And it's been actually a theme that I've always been shocked about. But I think just the biggest aspect is how do you just take time to reflect? And I'm curious, I'm jumping forward a little bit, but in your business, you know, you guys are growing quite rapidly. How do you create that space now? Because it's still important, you know, in ideation phase and even now, as you guys continue to grow. I mean, I think it's tough. I think that there's like a lot of ebbs and flows that happen, like as you onboard someone new, maybe you're pushing some workflow out and then you have some time, but then you're adding something else and then you're because you're growing and then you're so I think it's absolutely a process. I think initially I couldn't really afford any employees and the business wasn't big enough to support that. So you just kind of do everything. And and I think that's a great way to learn and grow your business. At some point, you're only one person and you have to scale and find ways to empower others. And I think it's a completely different skill set. And one way that I've kind of been thinking about it is, you know, we think about like an orchestra, right? It's like they all have their different roles and they they all make this beautiful music together and they have this conductor that makes them, you know, he, they know everything about every person's job in the song and they're really guiding them. But yeah, you have to notice that the conductor is never has an instrument. The conductor is like never playing the music. It's one, it's a completely different mm-hmm. skill than the the clarinet player or whoever, and they're also not conducting and then going in and then playing and then coming out, right? So I think that's kind of the transition that solely needs to be made of, okay, there could be situations where you're really able to do both. And I think that's great, but you have to try to be very mindful of that. And as you grow, you have to play more of that conductor role and they are two different skill sets. So once you've kind of learned how to be a good doer, that does not mean you're automatically amazing at managing people and getting things done. Another thing that I think about is we think about like how many Zoom meetings or even just meetings in general can we have a day? Maybe you can have eight meetings, like maybe. I mean, that's like, let's stretch it. Jeff Bezos yeah. has eight meetings that he can have. It doesn't matter where you are in any organization, you still only have the eight meetings. Just because you've 
added all these employees, it doesn't mean you've multiplied your time all of a sudden. So I think that's a very interesting concept that I always try to keep in mind. It's like, okay, now I have eight meetings today and I have to be as efficient with that managing one person or no people as I am with a bigger team. How do I make more out of my time? And so I'm always trying to think about structuring that and like really allowing myself to get into more of a conductor mode. And, you know, I'm definitely not there yet, but I'm really trying because I think that's like the best way to move forward. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, you did not have an employee for so long. Like it was you for many years. And I want to talk about those early days because I love how you've said where you start isn't where you finish. And the first product you guys launch is incredibly different than what you're up to today. So tell us more about what really went on behind the scenes and what you were doing when you launched your first and second product. I guess it was more just starting somewhere. I think I never really had, I was never felt like I had to accomplish everything on day one at all. And so I just really started out trying my best. Absolutely. And we got some great traction from early on, even I think maybe I didn't have every single thing, you know, I didn't have like amazing packaging, and a great brand story. But I think the brand story and the concept and the area in which we were trying to educate and push in the white space that existed was massive. And so that we got right. And when I look at my early like branding materials and things like we're actually telling the same exact thing we did like that actually did not change. I mean, it's been refined many, many times, but I think we got that right from early on. And so it was okay that some of the other things were evolving. And I think that's something that people should know is like, you don't need to get everything right. You just need need a couple of things to start pulling you through. And then eventually if you really want to grow and scale, yeah, you have to be probably hitting on all cylinders. But I think at that point, you've got so much experience and brand growth and learnings along the way that you can get there. From day one, you've always had this story. You were very early in bringing the Ayurvedic practices to skincare. And I believe your first product was, was it a mask? I think. Yeah, well, actually, one of the th- products we still have is the Jasmine Mist. But there were three mists and three masks that we had. And it was like, because I think when you think about super traditional Ayurveda, this idea of like Uptan and this mask concept was like really what I had started with. Yeah. And I'm curious, because I don't believe you have that mask anymore now. So at what point did you realize, okay, we're onto something. It seems like people are resonating with our mission, but we got to kind of pull back these certain products and kind of take the business to the next level. Like what was that tipping point for you? Well, it wasn't exactly that way. So what, what ended up happening is we launched these products. We actually had great feedback on the products themselves. But I started to dig into formulation a bit and I was able to come up with like, I mean, we have a a new mask formula today and I just was like, wow, this is really elevated. This is not like anything on the market. And so to me, I was like, well, if I've been able to hone my skills and get better at what I do, I'm going to do that. And so that's when I launched that product, knew that we were going to launch maybe a more kind of sophisticated user-friendly version. But still to this day, I do get a lot of requests for some of the masks that we created. 
And I think that they were all kind of early building blocks. And I feel like I always had a really good sense of product. And I think the product was good. I think that I just got better at formulating. And so I didn't feel bad to let go because Mm -hmm. I knew I was working towards something better. Yeah. And you know, your background is in formulations, but you didn't have any contacts in the skincare space. So how did you really think through manufacturing those first products? And were the minimums high, low? Like, how are you managing all of that early, early on? So I think the key to some of our success, I would say, is like, everything is bespoke and super custom. So it was almost great that I didn't call all the three contract manufacturers that like every brand uses and started to launch with their formulas. We built everything, you know, own every formula, have every bill of material, all the ingredients, you know, have a lot of control over our manufacturers and suppliers and are able to focus on quality. You know, when you launch in and you launch with some of the manufacturers, like the sort of ones that are out there, you're a small brand, so you're not going to get one access to like that many unique ingredients. And two, you're not going to be able to afford to customize much. And you wouldn't really even own the formula at the end of the day. So I ended up building all of that from scratch, which was great. And I think it ends up, it's really one of our like IPs is that, you know, if you look at any of our products, there's really not too much out there like it. And I think that's what I think has spoken to customer a lot and helped us build the brand. And how long did that take you to just kind of set up the manufacturing, sourcing everything? Like how long did that take for you to launch Ronovat with a few of your products? Initially, it was just a six month process where I had vetted. I mean, I actually still work with a lot of the manufacturers that I started with. We've just continued to work together. So I guess right off the bat, I, I did find the right partners. And I think that just, I had the experience to do it. So in many ways, I feel like that training, I knew when someone was right. So I went through a lot of people. It wasn't that I just picked the first person I saw, but I think the people that I had identified and that we started to manufacture with early on were really strong and we're still scaling with them today. And I made sure that they had the ability to scale too. Yeah, that's a good thing to keep in mind and how rewarding to grow with them as your business grows. That must be oh, it's awesome. fun. Yeah. And what I so appreciate about you also is just how scrappy you were building the business early on, right? I think you hired your first employee like four years into the business. So can you talk to us more about how you've thought about investing in the business and the growth in those early days? I think a lot of it had to do with patience, honestly. Like we didn't launch ads until some point last year, which has been a great way that we've been able to boost our direct business. But when we do things, I feel that we come at it with the right intention, even when we're delving into a ton of new areas and new growth opportunities, we're not against any sort of clock. And so we want to put in the right foundation, the right infrastructure, the right person. Like I just didn't want to hire people that were okay, just so I had an easier day to day, because ultimately, it's not easier. And you have a a big mess sometimes, like I just couldn't afford good people. So I waited until I could afford some amazing people. And when I see the way the team is shaping up, I am so glad that I did that, because everyone on the team is like an expert in what they do. And they know way more than I do about it, which is like, 
Yeah. And I appreciate because I feel like you've built the business in the right way. And like you said, patience is probably one of your superpowers. And I think there's actually a lot of entrepreneurs who kind of look at social media and they're like, wow, she's farther than I am. And when you really like peel back the onion, especially those that don't take any VC money, it's like that took like 10 years to kind of see where she is, you know, and that's why I love doing these interviews, because it's not like you wake up one day and you have this like incredible team. So I'm curious, how have you not compared yourself to other people? Because I know you've also said early on in your business, comparison was still something that you dealt with. So how have you stayed slow and steady and very patient when growing your business? Because I think that's a reality that a lot of people need to hear more about. I think I was just happy with everything that I had. Like I never felt like, oh my gosh, like even when I had a couple orders a day, like I was really excited to get those orders and people were really happy with the products and I was writing personalized notes to everyone. And we had all these like little fun wins that just get you excited. Whether, you know, in 2019, we won best serum for the saffron serum. We had just all these like random little things that kind of push you along. That was really exciting and it kept me going. And I never really felt like I didn't have something or, hey, I'm going to be happy when I do this. Of course, I have dreams and ambitions. I always wanted to launch in Sephora, but I didn't pin my happiness on it for sure. And so I think that really helped me stay focused on, look, I have so much to be thankful for. We have an amazing community. And I think bringing it back to the customer and their happiness and growing it for them was always what I think grounded me because the moment you start thinking about, oh, I want to be viewed as successful and I want to accomplish these things, you're actually, you're just looking for validation from the outside world. And that never like actually translates to you feeling good about yourself. You just like end up wanting more validation and you keep feeding off of that. And that becomes like your energy source, but which is sometimes good. I mean, I guess it drives people they have this external validation, they want to prove something and it drives them to accomplish their goal. That's always a good thing. But I do think that's not always a recipe for being happy. And so I want to still be successful. I want to accomplish everything I want to accomplish. But I also don't want someone else to be in control of that. I don't really feel like I want whether Sephora likes me or not to make me feel like I have a great brand. So that was always really important to me. Yeah, I love that. Just how focused you were on gratitude and not always in numbers because that's a moving target. Once you hit one goal, you're like, okay, let's get to the next one. And you're not as, like you said, fulfilled and happy. So I think it's just, how do you want to build a business and really being grateful for the existing customers? I mean, it brings me so much energy just to know you're impacting in the early days, just a few women. So I think that's like a great hack just to be happy as you're growing the company. And you know, you mentioned that early in the business, you guys really had a message that resonated. You haven't spent any marketing dollars until about a year ago. So how did you really gain awareness in the early days and what worked and what didn't work? My approach, because I didn't have like a built-in social media following or anything, we were just building that from scratch. That was always like great, but that wasn't the immediate. I actually grew a lot in retailers. So we launched at Neiman Marcus kind of right out of the gate. Credo, Nordstrom actually at the time. And so we had a lot of really big wins from a retail perspective. And then we paired that with press. So when you're a really small brand, I think press is, it's just so expensive to think about like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hire a publicist on retainer. Well, I did. And that was like probably one of my biggest expenses early on. 
And I think the combination of being at a prestigious retailer and getting good press very consistently was this like formula for getting brand awareness and growing a bit and getting that validation because I didn't have a big social following. So how else are you going to prove that you have a really good product? And so I think that was really what our formula was early on. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've heard mixed thoughts about PR and press that early in the business. But I think to your point, when you're in a reputable store like Neiman Marcus, I mean, there's a lot of potential to get that story out there. So kind of piggyback on their brand and awareness. So that's really interesting to see. And uh, was it tough to kind of scale? Because you guys were still pretty early. Like when you got into Neiman Marcus, how was the back end? I mean, I believe you guys were still fulfilling all those orders yourself and you have like stories getting your family involved. Like what was that like behind the scenes? It was crazy, but if you, if you actually think about it, it wasn't like that many orders, but for us, it was like, well, this is like a lot, but the reality is it wasn't crazy. You just like launch at any department store and now you're on a yacht somewhere. I mean, this is not the case, but it was, yeah. it was super exciting and definitely overwhelming, but like in a really good way, because I felt like, wow, this is so exciting that I need all this help to fulfill this order. And, you know, it was really thrilling, super exciting. And definitely when I look back on it, like such a rewarding time and felt like a big milestone for the brand. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like there are a few milestones that you guys hit, but what were some of the tipping points that you think really got you guys to the next level as you kind of look back at the few years? I think there were a lot, a lot. I think that we're a kind of brand that we didn't really have one thing. It's been a lot of little things and and sometimes not so little. I mean, we had some great celebrity mentions, whether it be like Hailey Bieber, Mindy Kaling, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, lots of great celebrity mentions. But I actually think the heart of the entire business is, is literally the customer. For us, it wasn't really anything other than we had a good product. And I think... I can attest to this being like South Asian, having a luxury product and having it be inspired by Ayurveda, something that people are very familiar with, something that people tend to associate DIY with. We were making this pitch to be like, look, you should invest in this $135 serum. And I think it's a hard sell, honestly, to a South Asian community because they're like, oh, well, I can just like make it at home. Or they're like, I, I don't really typically spend this much on my beauty, which totally, but we actually have like an amazing response. And a lot of the response yeah. was like, man, I don't usually spend this much, but let me tell you, this works. Like, this is so good. Yeah. And I think that was what the magic was, is that literally people were telling their friends about it. They were maybe unsure about if it would work or not. They made the investment, took the leap and were blown away. So I think we pleased almost the toughest customer right away, or not the toughest, like I would say most discerning because they knew the most about Ayurveda. And we were able to prove to them that, look, there is something special and this is worth it. And I felt like that was really good training ground. And that really put our product to the test. And then as we sort of grew into that, then we were able to say, look, this is a cult favorite serum, won many different beauty awards. I mean, even... Looking back, I mean, we consistently like knock on wood win beauty awards for the products. And I think that just is like 
a testament to what we've created. So maybe we didn't get every aspect right, or we're building slowly, but I think it was the product and the customer, that combination kept us alive. Yeah. And I love how you said also, it's like many little things that you have been doing compounding every year, right? Like so many people think if this celebrity talks about my product or promotes it, like that's it. I'm like going to be on the map. Things are amazing, but it's not. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes of you showing up every day. It's like a nice bump, but that's not what's going to like get you to the next, next level, right? Or what are your thoughts? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think validation is great and everything contributes to growing a brand. But I do think people probably give more credit. And I think it like it totally depends on like, okay, what's the mention? How deep dive is it? You know, sure. what like of course, like all of that is just very variable. But I will say on the whole, definitely don't be concerned or don't kind of work for that random odd that some celebrities gonna like your product. I mean they will, I'm sure it'll happen over time. But I think the real person you have to win over is actually just the person buying it. And if they come back to Mm -hmm. you, you have really good loyalty, then you know, you've created something good. And then of course, everyone's going to learn about it and talk about it. And then your product's doing all the work for you. Yes, I love to hear that. And you know, you mentioned you got into paid ads only a year ago. Is there a reason why you kind of waited over the few years? Were you just growing so much just from natural word of mouth that you thought was just not the right time? Like, how have you thought about putting marketing dollars around ads? I just think we didn't have an infrastructure for it. Like there was like one, you know, me and then I had a contractor who now is full time with us in marketing. And between the two of us, you know, we launched a new website, we added like two or three new products. I mean, there was just like lower hanging fruit that we were working on and only so much time in the day. So we just didn't. And I I mean, man, I guess looking back and I was like, maybe we should have launched earlier, but we just (laughs) didn't have the time. And it's actually quite expensive. And so it was a bit of a risk. So I kind of had to wait until I grew enough where, okay, if I'm out this money, then it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I selfishly ask because a lot of people are like, why aren't you doing any ads? I'm like, I'm just trying to just figure out the growth of the business now. And there's, like you said, there's not a lot of us and I want to be very intentional about the ads and not just kind of give it to someone. So I think there's a lot of layers that go into just like turning on ads. And like you said, it's kind of expensive. So you need to just kind of run the testing and see, is it worth it for you guys and evaluate it? So it's great to just yeah, hear we how you thought with about a consultant, it. actually. So we didn't do any of it in-house. So we had someone manage ads. So even through that, we had to like not only pay for the ads, but then pay for the person. And that was super expensive. But, you know, yeah. in, in many ways, it helped us scale and grow. So really thankful that we took that risk. That's great. That's good to hear. And, you know, one thing you've mentioned is also you never really used to show up on social media like that wasn't very natural to you. And so much of your brand is just you and your story and your face. So how is that evolution for you? Were you excited to kind of be the face of the brand? And how has that resonated with your community who loves Ranavat and the products? I think it's just a natural evolution. I mean, when I think about 2020 and, you know, you kind of had to be where the customer was. And during the pandemic and lockdown, before that, I was going to so many different in-person events. And a lot of what I did was more like IRL type small group stuff. And then when we were kind of forced to do maybe whether it would be more Zoom sessions, but for sure, social media and content creation, like I was stuck at home all day. 
with the great lighting in LA. So, you know, one thing led to another and I started to like get into it. And I realized that I just didn't have to be anyone else. Like I think showing up, I was like, oh man, I'm not super overly energetic and I'm not the typical beauty influencer. So I just kind of discounted myself in that. But then I guess slowly I just started seeing that people were resonating with the Mm. content But it didn't happen for a long time. I mean, we were like growing. We went from like, it took a long time to get to like, let's say one or 2000 or something. Then to hit 10K, it's like another year, two years. Then I think like in the fourth year, we were at 30 or 40K. And then from 40 to 100 was, yeah. From 40 to 100 was like in nine months or something. So it's actually really interesting that you would think like, oh yeah, I guess it happened overnight, but not really. I mean, to get to like a thousand took forever, you know? Yes. But then to get to a hundred thousand didn't, but that's all when you look back on it, it's everything kind of culminates. And so you had to stay in the game of the very slow going nowhere for like four years until it just like got there. So like, I could have just given up three years ago and thought, Hey, this thing just doesn't work for me. Oh my gosh. Good thing I stayed in like another couple of months because that's when everything changed. It's so true. I mean, just the power of content being consistent. Like we were posting content before our product even launched and we were doing daily content for a year. And I think we got to like a thousand and very similar to you. Like we just kind of stayed the course. We're like, okay, we'll get like 10 likes today, 20 likes. And now, you know, we're a little over 10,000, but it's just no one was looking at our stuff like a year ago. So it just shows just keep powering through and putting out content that resonates with you, right? Like you said, you showed up as yourself. And Mm -hmm. people like that people resonate with like who you are as a person. And that's unique to you. And you shouldn't be like everybody else. So I think like putting out content that resonates with you makes the whole process easier and fun for you, which is like always important, right? And I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And I want to talk about your morning routine, because you actually did a post that really resonates with me. And I've thought a lot about this, you know, you always talk about how you wanted to like be that early morning person and fit into this mold for so many years. And at just one point, you're like, this is just not who I am. So like, tell me what goes on in the mornings and just kind of how you let go of that expectation for yourself of waking up at 5am before the kids and doing everything and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to like lean into who you are. I think that should just never change. And I think going against what you want to do and what makes you happy to fit a certain stereotype, to me, doesn't really feel like it's a habit that's going to stick. If you, in your deepest desires, you want to change your habits, absolutely do it. But I think that there's a lot to be said about actually knowing who you are and embracing. I will say that I have had to be a little more structured than usual about my time, but I still keep everything really mindful in terms of making sure that I I do things at my own pace. So for example, I want to say at my own pace because like I feel like I'm super busy, but I'll share with you a couple of things that I do. So I do work out in the morning, but I, I do it at 7.30. So not that early. So my mornings are pretty much just like I wake up I put some Radiant Ronnie on and I have a trainer. So I don't really go anywhere. So that actually like helps me and saves time and just out of habit. Like I don't have to actually mentally 
schedule or make any effort. So that that's really helpful. So three days a week, I do that. And then by the time like I'm working out, my husband has worked out before me. So he's getting the kids ready in the morning. And then right when my work, oh, sorry, it's actually seven, seven to seven thirty. My workout ends at seven thirty, And then I take the kids to school. So they have to be at school by eight. Now, usually my first meeting will be at eight. So I'll just kind of end up showering or getting ready at like a different point in the day. But mostly my Mondays, I keep meeting free. So I like to structure the Monday as like, okay, you're with family all weekend. I don't like to feel the pressure of like diving in and feeling like a crazy person or feeling like I had to work on the weekend to feel good on Monday. So I use my Monday almost as a Sunday to be like, okay, I don't have like meetings where I'm running around. I'm just focused on clearing my schedule. I don't have a ton of meetings. I also have work blocks during my most productive hours in the day. So between 10 and one, I block off my calendar. And so I usually don't do meetings at that time so that I can, you know, whether it's go through my email, take a quick shower, eat lunch, whatever it is, that time period is for like productivity and life things that need to be done. And then I like scheduling my meetings morning, early morning, or after that time. So those ways have really helped. And then Friday, you know, any sort of meetings that I have that are more like, oh, meeting, you know, so-and-so for lunch or whatever, that's all on Friday. And I just keep everything on that day. So I'm not pressured to be like, okay, now I have to go here. And then I'm running around and doing this. It's like, just try to stack everything in the best way. So when I'm in a mode of I'm out of the office, I'm in that mode. Yeah, uh, I love that. That resonates a lot. It's funny because my husband can go between like seeing someone for lunch and coming back and working. And it's tough for me to kind of go between the two. So I love that concept of like blocking the days that you're going to do deep work meetings. And like Fridays, you have a little bit more flexibility. And actually, I love how you think through Mondays, because even when you run your own business, there is still expectation of Mondays on Sundays. Like I see myself working and sometimes it's like, well, how does it go on on the weekend sometimes too? Yeah, right. And sometimes it's like, okay, maybe I'll do a little bit of work on Sunday. But I like your concept of money, just keeping it open and catching up on everything. Because, you know, especially I'm sure for you, as you're growing the team, like, you have to be thoughtful about what they're doing and need to like, kind of sit there and not always take meetings. So I love that. I think I might have to try that out. But I appreciate it. I mean, I, I still haven't figured out. I think I still work a lot. So I haven't figured out the solution to that. But I, I honestly love what I do. And I think I always yeah. make sure that Am I waking up and like being super excited about the day or am I waking up and be like, oh my God, like I've never, I don't think for a long time I've ever had like Sunday scaries or anything where I'm like, oh my God, I'm not excited about doing it. Like I look at all my music, oh, I'm so excited to talk to all these people, but I have to make sure things that don't make me excited are feeling like I'm really behind or that I'm not able to be responsive. And so I try to just craft my environment so that I'm not feeling that way. Mm. God, that's so powerful. And I think it just goes into like really having perspective of like who you are, what sucks your energy, what gets you excited and kind of like build your life around that. So it's like energy management is like how you succeed in this role. So that's great to hear. And, you know, you said you work so much, which is just part of growing a business. And when you love it, it's just second nature. Do you ever have those days where you do feel burnout, whether it's like you're more engaged with the kids and you're managing a bunch of things or you have a launch? Like there's a lot that's been happening for you. Congrats, by the way, like over the past no, month. But like, how do you deal with burnout if you ever get to that stage? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I operate honestly between 
highly stressed and burnt out a lot, but I think everyone's different. Like I think everyone relates to stress and is affected by stress in a different way. I think I have a bit of a unique capacity to be able to deal with a lot of that. Like if a lot of things are unfinished or unplanned, I mean, I went to London We knew that the inventory was going to land at Harrods. We didn't know the day, weren't sure if the whole setup was going to be there. Obviously, I had booked an entire trip around it. Details were coming in last minute about the meetings. And I mean, it doesn't really bother me that much. So I think I just operate a little bit. And I don't know how sustainable it is, but it genuinely doesn't bother me that much. There are times where I reach a burnout period. And I think like when I got back from London, like last week, I was for sure kind of exhausted a a little bit. And I don't know, I think it's okay. Like I just did what I could. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I I felt so like, I think I just know things are not going to be 100% all the time. And so sometimes I, I am a little bit behind on things. I mean, like perpetually, but that doesn't bother me that much. One little tip that I'll share is like when you think about like you have a big fire, the way that you want to attack it is like think about one localized area and putting all your water to that area so you can actually burn it out and go. If you just like sprinkle a little bit here and there, it's like not really going to do anything to the fire. So sometimes what I do in my mind, I just mentally I'm like, okay, I might have like 50 things to do, but I'm only focusing on the two things that I've prioritized. And that's how I sometimes push through. Yeah. And I think we just had the founder of Skin Tea, Basama, on our show a few weeks ago. And she was saying, like, I just postponed the stress. It's like, there's only so much you can handle. And it's like, all right, like you said, like, let's just tackle this. We'll get to that later. Also, what I've just realized from your personality, you also don't put a lot of judgment on yourself. Like if you're perpetually behind, it doesn't seem like you're sitting there kicking yourself in the butt being like, oh, I'm behind. I'm the worst. Like people can get into that mindset. And it's just horrible, especially if you're going to like start a business, right? Yeah. And definitely I have, you know, weaknesses in terms of personality for sure. When it comes to entrepreneurship, maybe it's like not knowing limits or, you know, certain things like that, like really pushing really hard. But I definitely think that like some of my quirks are actually really good for, it's like, I'm not that organized of a person, which of course, like that has its downsides. But if something's not buttoned up, I'm actually okay with it. And I live with it and that doesn't, doesn't keep me up at night, really. Yeah, I love that. And you know, I want to get your general thoughts. I'm sure you meet with so many entrepreneurs. and I love asking this question. But from your perspective, what do you think are maybe one or two things that you think a lot of people are making a mistake when it comes to launching their business or just entrepreneurship in general? What is a mistake that they're making? That they're making? Yeah. I don't know. Because I think like I made a lot of mistakes too. Mm. And I feel like I don't feel, I guess maybe it's, thinking their mistakes, and I don't know if people do this, but really feeling that it's like finite. Like if someone has said no to you, or if you miss an opportunity, that that's like a finite thing in your life. In my mind, I think everything is an evolution. So I don't really feel like, yeah, I I launched with different packaging and launched with different product assortment. I wouldn't say that's a mistake. I think that's a way to start and a way to realize that you don't need to be perfect. And when I launched it, I honestly thought it was perfect. So in a way, it's like, maybe you could call it a mistake. I would say, I don't, I don't think anyone really is making a mistake unless they are feeling like they're stuck in their ways and they can't evolve because maybe that's probably one of the biggest issues that you can have is just not learning or growing from what you've done. 
Yeah. And just talking about like your branding, I had another woman on the podcast say, you know, if you're not embarrassed by like the first product launch or something you created, then you waited too long. And I love that because you think it's great. And then you look back and you're like, oh, wow, like, how did I go out with that? But you're like you said, you're always evolving and you don't have to have everything perfect on that first go. And if anything, I'm sure you've learned so much from your customers along the way, right? And that has helped you kind of tweak things. Yeah. And I I have to say, it's interesting Nobody really said anything bad about it, which I think is key to anyone listening, is that sometimes you won't have all the signs. Like, for example, it's not like I got a ton of feedback that like, oh, your packaging needs to be... I did get that feedback like one time from a mentor that I like really respect, but it wasn't like a lot of people are saying that. So I think that's also interesting. Like, even if there are things that maybe aren't obvious to you, you still should feel okay about revising and evolving. It's not always going to be so obvious. Like someone's not going to come to you and be like, well, your website kind of needs some help. It's like, you kind of have to recognize those things on your own to realize, okay, I can do better. I've learned a lot. I can do this in a better way. So don't wait for someone to come to you to say you need to change something. Mm. Oftentimes I feel like, that doesn't happen. You actually kind of have to do yourself. And actually, people told yeah. me not to change it. Really? Yeah. I'd be yeah. like, I like your packaging. Don't change it. I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm changing it. Yeah. It's like what feels right to you, right? Like in your gut, you're ready to kind of take this next step and you leaned into that. So that's good to hear. But Michelle, I want to be mindful of our time together, but it was such a joy having you on the podcast. I appreciate you coming and sharing more about Ranava. And I'm so inspired by you and can't wait to see just the way the business will continue to grow and evolve. But it was such an honor Uh, having you on. Of course. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.